Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast for creators of any variety. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. For all of you first-time or returning listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. I do appreciate it. Oh gosh, we have some sad news in the comedy world. Iowa West is closing its doors this week. Apparently, the business wasn't doing so well, so they couldn't stay open any longer, and that is very sad. A lot of great people and great performers are at the IOS and have come out of the IOS. I have a great deal of respect for them all, so it's just sad to see them losing that stage, but I hope they don't lose their community and um, and uh, can continue on in some way. The legendary Beer Shark Mice team is performing the final Iowa West show. So much love and respect to them all. I have an amazing guest today. Her name is Keisha Zoller, an actress, writer, and comedian who works at Comedy Central's The Opposition with Jordan Klepper, a great show. She and I have a fantastic discussion about political comedy and art, and she has an incredible insight on producing video projects. You can learn a lot from this discussion, so let's get right to it. Here's my chat with Keisha Zoller. So you're currently working at the opposition as a writer. Yes. You've done a ton of things, though, prior to that. Um, Where did you get your start in comedy? I think I got my start in comedy by not uh, wanting to cry anymore. I went to the actor studio uh, drama school where I spent too many years being an actor who cried and I graduated and wanted to do comedy. Mm. Uh, I love drama, don't get me wrong, it was just a very dramatic experience. And so I started uh, actually doing short form in New York City, and then I started taking classes at that Bright Citizens Brigade, and uh, then I did a bunch of other stuff, and that's how I landed here. Oh, okay, that's awesome. When you say uh, crying, was that on stage or off stage or both? Um, both. Both. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so, like, bringing some humor was definitely the way to go about it. When did you get your start um, at UCB? Like, when did you start performing there? Probably around 2009-ish, 2010. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. started with Doppelganger, Sashir Zameda, Nicole Byer, and me. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just started performing a whole, whole bunch, and it was a delight, so I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. Yeah, yeah, and that's great company to be in, obviously. Um, Yeah. Yeah, they're fantastic. So, because you're around in the scene here, especially at UCB, you're making a lot of great connections, uh, and you're doing all this work. You've you've acted in several things. um, Yeah. But, I'm an uh, actor, trained yeah. actor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, you've been in uh, Divorce, the show on HBO with Sarah Jessica Parker, and uh, 
various things. I'm I've been around. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm a hustler. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's what you need in this city, especially in entertainment. Well, in any uh, <laughs> any industry here. Um, so have now. I know that you did the Magnet podcast. Did you have any time there uh, at, the, at the Magnet Theater? No, I, I performed on shows and uh, I, I knew Megan Gray for, or Megan for a while and uh, uh, just been around a little bit, but I didn't really perform much regularly there. Mm-hmm. Uh, how no matter how much I love this space, I think the magnet has a really beautiful space. Yeah, I love that stage. Um, it's a great stage. Yeah, such a good spot and uh, and and has a cozy atmosphere. Yeah, I I love performing, especially uh, characters or things like that. It yeah. feels really nice. Yeah, yeah. What would you say is your approach to to comedy um that's so interesting i was like how do i approach it uh for (laughs) me it it goes down to uh for a feeling like Mm -hmm. i'm i'm all about like how do i feel about what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. and trying to like remind myself that i have opinions and that i think a lot of things are messed up in the world Mm -hmm. and to bring my full experience unabashedly to the things that annoy or outrage me. And, uh, I, I think that's why, like, I've always been drawn towards satire or, uh, uh, comedy news or things of that nature, because I just get really frustrated at the world. Uh, and comedy is a coping mechanism, uh, for me. That or burning it down. I, don't, I can't decide. Day to day. <laughs> now, I mentioned uh, that you're on the Magnet podcast. I listened to that interview and really enjoyed the entire discussion. Um, you, you said a lot of things I really appreciated, so I know that this is going to be a really great discussion because of it. And um, some of it, and, and you just sort of mentioned some of what I wanted to talk to you about. One thing that you talked about in there with uh, the host, Lewis Kornfeld, was that it seemed that uh, the idea that the lay person, the person not in comedy had about comedy was that you're always jokey and always always on and always a goofball and a clown. And I would say now that trend is starting to sort of change. Now we're hearing a, a lot about, like people will say like advocacy comedy and things like that. And I wonder if that's in large part because of the political comedy shows. But... Um, there's this also also an idea from even some people in the comedy community that comedy should be about speaking truth to power, um, which is you know obviously very different than the sort of be a clown just for my amusement sort of approach that people thought what comedy was all about. So given that you're working at a political comedy show, how do you view your role as a comedian? Uh, well. First of all, I, I've had to come to terms with uh, my comedic voice, I guess. Mm-hmm. When I first started out in comedy, I've always admired people who were just like, I can do a thing, be a clown, and I'm getting laugh, 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 joke, joke, joke. Mm-hmm. But I've always 
been, I guess my comedic self and my comedic brain is differently that I've always been more politically inclined. Mm -hmm. And so first off, I feel like about three years ago, I had to like come out to myself as a political comedian. Mm -hmm. And that was a struggle that some of my best humor is from that part of me. And I, I really think that there's room for all kinds of comedy. I, I just had to get in line with my comedic voice, which is very specific. I believe everyone has a comedic voice and sometimes I think you can refine it so you can do everything. However, I do think a lot of times we just have natural lanes. We go down and, and we have to like anything else. I I always equate it to like going through puberty Mm -hmm. and like you look at your body and you go, Hey, why isn't my body doing what my friend Julie's is doing or my friend Chris's? Damn, I wish my body was like theirs. And at a certain point, you're like, ah, screw all of it. This is the body I have and you have to march forward. So how do I view my voice within that? I really see my voice as like pointing to the things that it's easy to miss that like a lot of times we get numb to the oppressive forces or it's hard to see the weaving of the powers that be and how they manipulate society also just like creating space for different voices like Mm -hmm. part of it is uh, I've produced a bunch of shows I've been on a bunch of shows and for me the things I enjoy the most are the ones that are a greater reflection of the world I live in so it like, I guess my duty is feels like it's to reflect the world as I see it. And I think a lot of comedy's holes has been comedy hasn't been as open to a multitude of voices. So you've seen one lane of comedy, which is fine. It definitely deserves to exist, but there's more lanes out there. And I think by offering more lanes, you're seeing advocacy comedy, you're seeing uh, sociopolitical comedy, you're seeing people really uh, expand like what dance comedy is. Like you're seeing different comedic art forms because you're including more voices. And yeah. um, I'd be lying to say that I'm not like 100% pro-diversity on that tip, mainly because I get bored at a lot of comedy. Uh-huh. And it took a while for me to go, oh, I just don't relate to it because that's not my experience. And not that it's not technically good or interesting or it doesn't have an audience. I'm just not that audience and I don't care. Right, right. It's just not necessarily your, it may not be your cup of tea, but it's also just, you know, just because something doesn't relate to you doesn't mean that it's not your cup of tea even. Like it's just more nuanced, I think, than people are making it. Exactly. And uh, I think the more comedians you see, the the wider uh, uh, tastings you can have. And like, and relating to experience, there's always going to be the people who say, when I say that goes straight to identity, Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, is visible. But I think a lot of comedy also relates to the non-visible identity aspects of ourselves. 
uh, do people struggle with confidence in uh, certain lanes? Do people struggle with interpersonal interactions in certain lanes? And those are the pieces in terms of like relating to the subject, relating to the piece of comedy that I think uh, too many people who have a basic understanding of quote unquote identity politics, which is really just politics. It's always been about identity. Yeah. I can't mess with people who are like, Oh, it's all this identity politics. I was like, no, my identity has been this the whole time. You've just said blank identity is the only one that deserves to be recognized as normal. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to be seen as normal. Right. Or that means right. and that just means accepting their difference as a part of the human experience right uh one of the things you said in that interview on magnet podcast which i encourage people to go listen to is that we're not all the same and you know you weren't advocating for any one group saying think just like i think you were saying we're not all the same. You're saying it now too. Like there are all these different kinds of people out there. We all just want to be treated like we're normal. And also like a show uh, I helped run an open mic. I helped run. I was in South Carolina, tons of white dudes. And when we had women come to shows, I'd say, please come back. You're hilarious. And you brought something new to the show. That was just more exciting. I mean, if it's just, any one kind of person is just getting trotted up on stage for 20 comics, you're going to get a little bored because it's all the same. But when you have different people and different perspectives who are saying different things that you would never have thought of because you're not like them, then it makes the show more exciting and overall better. So why wouldn't you be an advocate for diversity? Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Uh, I, I, I relate to things that like, it may not be my personal background. I might be an ally mm-hmm. to a community and I still find that in interest. I find that their observations, their sharings, like what, what I mean by that is those comedians who were up there doing it. And sometimes it means going down and talking about those things in first person. And sometimes those uh, pieces of their identity and take a back seat. It's not my uh, place to judge or tell them how they should navigate that. They've right. lived their life. They got to do that themselves. However, they bring everybody when they can bring their full richness and the stage looks like the world, you realize how interesting comedy can be. Mm-hmm. And not just funny because like, I laugh at dumb stuff all the time. You can get me any day, any day with a good fart, poop, vomit, or piss joke. Oh, yeah. I mean, American Vandal shows us that you can do really highbrow, thoughtful stuff by making a ton of dick jokes. That's the thing. It's like, at the end of the day, uh, I am fully aware that uh, some of uh, my low humor desires... uh, uh, are still there and will always be there. However, that doesn't make them thoughtful or interesting just because I laugh. And I think that is a hard reckoning just because you get that like laugh and you're thirsty to get laughs mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's a good laugh. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Like, they can be bad laughs. Yeah. Cheap laughs. 
cheap laughs. We laugh because we're nervous. We're scared. We like, so I, I mean, and I, I like those interesting laughs. It's yeah. like, it's like for me, it's like once you get past the point, uh, if you drink, if you are someone who consumes alcohol, there's a difference between when you get past the point of being like, I'm going to get wasted to, I want to taste something delicious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I guess for me, I'm at the point, I was like, I want to get something delicious delivered yeah. to me comedically. And oh, everything yeah. else, ugh, I don't need that fast food right now. I'm trying to go on a, a ha-ha <laughs> cleanse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really beautiful way to put it those are great analogies because you know sometimes you know just we want the comfort food of going to taco bell but we can't eat at taco bell every day exactly sometimes we gotta get mom's cooking exactly and when you think about it that way you realize there's enough space for everybody yeah yeah absolutely and it's good to have a yin and a yang to it like that because you're you're getting different stuff. Like if I, I I like pizza, but I would get really bored if I ate it every single day. You know, throw a burger in there, throw a salad in there, throw some soup in there. I don't care. You know, like make it good. And I think that's one thing that I want to talk to you about is uh, laziness in people's work where they're just, you know, doing the easy jokes, but also not really putting the work into it being inspired. Like, I don't care if it's a fart joke or satire about the culture we live in or politics right now. I want the work to be inspired. I want it to be well-crafted. It doesn't have to have a specific purpose for me. I don't think it, that, that being inspired means it has an agenda. And a lot of times, an agenda can be too heavy-handed. Um, so to me, it should really just be about inspired work. Do you think that, uh, being lazy kind of comes to that sort of point, you know, where it's more about how hard are you working at crafting something and being genuine? Well, I think what's hard is I, I'm always hesitant to call somebody's piece lazy. Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't know where they are in the process of crafting it. Right. And I I don't know. I always like to look at how, how different artists and, and different disciplines approach it. Like you have people who are able to beast out well-crafted uh works of art right away. And then you have other people who I'm going to use the analogy of, a, of like a, a, a statue, like someone who whittles down a statue. I'm losing the exact term for it, but uh, whittling a statue, uh, <laughs> that person uh, chunk by chunk, piece by piece brings forth their creative vision. Right mm-hmm. now, some people uh, might look at it too early and go, ooh, that's lazy. <laughs> Other people might look at it and go, there's something there. Eh, why don't you chip off a little uh, on that left ear? Nice. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So I, I think for me, it's like, 
how we are perceiving people's things. And also, uh, it is that thing of like, for me, lazy feels like, are you getting the cheap laugh? Right. Meaning like you're getting the laugh that like, you know, you can get and you're not tickling that artistic delight that makes you do it, whether that delight is at times painful or hard, but like tickling that artistic piece of yourself that is striving or you're just doing the thing that feels a little rote and routine. Mm-hmm. Very good distinctions there. You mentioned there about a perception. You work on The Opposition as a writer. Great show. I've been to two tapings of the show and would love to work there, you know, like any job. If if you all needed someone just to sweep yeah. the floors so you could do comedy, I'd be like, hand me a broom. Um, I I really appreciate the show, so I'm certainly not trying to draw any sort of negative distinction here. When it comes to the way people seem to perceive political comedy, I wonder if people have the wrong perception about the purpose sometimes. Like, And again, even some comics where it seems like people maybe learn the wrong lesson from The Daily Show or Colbert Report, where they are in a, and I can't say lazy, but just in a way that's maybe too heavy-handed trying to make a purpose, a point, rather than make comedy that strong. You know, like they had had such a specific point or agenda that they just crafted some ideas uh, for comedy around that, as opposed to, finding the truth in the situation and then coming to a comedic end with how they presented it. Um, do you feel now that you're in that world of doing a, a political show that people are sort of getting it wrong about what it is you are actually trying to create or am I off on what I'm thinking uh, I'm perceiving? I, I think it's that paradox of you can't control your audience. Right. All you can do is refine your message. And I I mean, there is an overall frustration in me as a human who uh, exists in the world about how thoughtless people are in general. Mm. People turn on the TV and I'm guilty of doing it. Don't get me wrong. of like uh, participating in things thoughtlessly. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. A lot of we make thoughtless choices every day and some of them have to be automatic and thoughtless. Otherwise, we would overload our circuit boards. Right. Um, so I think people just look at it uh, surface. And I think what's hard is about satire in general and like working on a satirical character driven show mm-hmm. is people have to think and in that way I think as you begin to craft an argument you start to realize that some onus is on you in how you craft an argument to present to the public to for them to hopefully get the intended message you want Mm -hmm. and on the flip side I, I think people look at a lot of comedy as wrong at, in the sense that, like, I'm going to give up my opinions on, like, Tyler Perry. I think there are white people who watch 
Tyler Perry with negative racist intentions. Mm. And all they pull from it are the negative racist intentions that reaffirm their racist negative beliefs. Right. Okay. I know exactly the type of thing you're talking about. It's, it's that anything, any stereotype that people have made about black people over the years is in certain characters uh, exemplified. And they use that as evidence of the stereotypes they've said about black people for years. Yes, they they go in with their confirmation bias. Right. And I think people strongly like just lean on their confirmation bias. And I try to check it so often, right? Mm-hmm. By surrounding myself with different voices. There are some voices that I struggle because I was like, well... We can't really have an like an egalitarian fair uh, on the level conversation if you at least don't respect the elements of me that make a human. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's a level of pure dehumanization that comes with bigotry. Right. That like I don't know I don't have the energy for that. But the, right. then there's a different conversation when you're talking about big government, small government, and how historically. X, Y, and Z versus the reality. As in, uh, I do think there's a legitimate argument for this idea of states' rights. However, it has been twisted, manipulated by oppression and power and restriction of women's rights and Mm -hmm. uh, racism that there ain't no conversation to be had anymore. Right. And that is sad for our democracy. Yep. We can't have a thoughtful conversation on maybe people in New York City should make have a substantially higher minimum wage than people who are in r- rural areas. Right. That there are different confines. And that, for me is uh, like a legitimate argument that the needs, and even if you were to talk about socialized medicine in this way, you'd need state by state rights. You're going to have different farm injuries versus city injuries. uh, And that's just the way the world is. And that's fine. But we can't even have conversations like that. We can't talk about access. We can't talk about infrastructure because it's been dominated by systems of oppression, uh, systems that are literally killing and murdering individuals, that are silencing uh, people, that are taking away their agency. So I get exhausted by it and frustrated because at the end of the day, that that that's why I I'm so for it's like we have to remember that our language matters and that moving forward isn't a bad thing. It's how we evolve our brain, makes make our brains bigger, create more connections because time's gonna move on with or without us. I mean exactly, yeah, yeah, uh, and and that's one of the things that I think is hard for people to sort of grasp sometimes because person to person when you're talking to somebody and they they make it about these sort of fringe arguments you know like the language that the fringes uses and uh the games that the people on the fringes play and those are the only rules of the game that you can go by when there's so much middle ground that's happening on the uh level of the politicians and how they engage in discourse 
and it's happening on how on the level of how people just engage in discourse. Yes, and I I think part of it is uh, uh, and whether it's the education system, whether it's we as a society don't value curiosity, we don't value wisdom. Um, I think we've just disconnected about like the purpose of language, the point of language. Like I was talking to somebody, it's like, it's really hard to talk to people that there's a difference between profanity and slurs. (laughs) I'm down with profanity. I use it all the time slurs ooh, that's mm-hmm. when you have to start actually uh talking about identity because mm-hmm. slurs traffic in them right they traffic in identity it wouldn't be a slur without it and, and there's that, only malicious intent when there's a slur there's not always a malicious intent when it's profanity exactly and it's not based on anything that is potentially perceived mm-hmm. right being called a bitch is gendered mm-hmm. or using that term is inherently gendered, weak, whatever. Um, being called a fuck. Well, <laughs> anybody can. Yeah, right. A little kid. That little baby fuck. That adult <laughs> fuck. That teenage fuck. That fuck in a wheelchair. That uh, <laughs> fuck 70-year-old. That, like, anybody can be a fuck, mm-hmm. right? Black fuck, white fuck, any fuck. Like, that's where it's like the profanity of it. Like, using it as an insult is still not a slur. Because if it is a slur, it's a slur on a character. (laughs) (laughs) Which is something we have agency over, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think those are the things that, like, I, I, I really... I really wish more people just understood that, mm-hmm. you know, like when I was an improv teacher, uh, I still teach improv on occasion, but when people ask me about, can I do this accent? I finally figured out the math of how to communicate what accent you can and can't do effectively. Okay. And what is uh, what is that? Uh, if a country's been colonized... You can't do that accent unless that's your heritage. That's your place. That's your strength. However, if it's a country that colonizes, everybody can do it. <laughs> and when you think about it, it's like, here's why. Col- countries that have colonized places have everybody, have not been robbed or oppressed they may have a painful history of civil war and da, da 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 but they've ultimately been in a position of power to oppress, belittle, and demean other countries, right? Mm-hmm. They're not exploiting. Mm-hmm. So that's why, we, like, if, and if you think about it, uh, countries that have colonized their general makeup literally could be anybody, right. anyone could be French. <laughs> you could have any descent and yeah. be French. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You could be like Canadians, right? Yeah. They've done some colonization. They've apologized to some of their indigenous people, mm-hmm. but they've colonized, right? Yeah. yeah. British. Yeah. And when you think about that, you're like, oh, those are the countries for the most part 
that have had a level of power and access and the other countries have not. Mm -hmm. And it's your, you're reinforcing reinforcing colonization. You're right, reinforcing okay. the your identity is for my ability to be manipulated. Mm -hmm. You are a manipulative plaything with because if you have been colonized, you have been oppressed. Your identity, everything, your resources has been used for someone else's purpose. So why continue to do it with comedy? No, thank you. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, I guess the outlier might be doing a Chinese. I mean, they have power, but there aren't a lot of, you know, there are a lot of non-Chinese Chinese people like like in Canada. Yes. Uh, Even if they did do a blackface in their in a sketch this week um, on their television, uh, which was offensive. But, you know. It was obviously offensive when uh, in My Fair Lady, when Mickey Rooney was doing a, that garish yeah. uh, uh, characterization. And I would argue, I would also offer pushback. Uh, China also has a, a diverse blend of Asian cultures, right. not just Chinese. Also, we forget that Hong Kong mm -hmm. uh, and there's various parts of China that have different histories with the West. True, yeah. So, I was more I, meaning like you can find a black Englishman or a black Canadian, but you yeah. is there a, a black guy in China with a Chinese accent? Maybe, I don't, and I just don't know because it's I mean, that, that, that we'd have to go deep cut. It, it would, <laughs> yeah. I, I'd be curious. Here's the thing. Nothing would surprise me anymore. <laughs> We're all so yeah. interconnected, possibly. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. Um, I I have seen an Asian with an Australian accent. Accent. I have not seen a black guy with an Australian accent. So I will refrain from doing it, and that's not a cop out because I can't do an Australian accent. <laughs> um, uh, I've met black people uh, in Australia from okay. Australia. Not okay. in Australia. I haven't been there, but so, who have been from. So now my excuse can only be that I You're just lazy. can't do one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> get it together. Stop being lazy and get that accent together. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get pimped to do one tonight uh, just because that's how karma works. Uh, <laughs> well, as I expected, this was going to be an amazing conversation. I, I appreciate your thoughts on everything that you just shared. Um, I do want to transition to talking about some of the, like the fact that you've done so many other projects because you've written and produced and directed a number of things of, of your own uh, short films and things. And I think that would be uh, a, a good thing for us to talk about because there are people who are striving to do that and they have no idea how to get it done. Like they, they maybe have written it, but how do they get it produced and completed? Uh, is is it as easy as just going step by step and just finding some people to shoot it? Or are there some big things people just wouldn't anticipate that you could tell them about? Wow. I Everything you asked, I just said yes, yes, and yes to in my head. <laughs> so all of it, uh, to break it down, I think uh, it 
every project has its own creative challenges. What is it? It's either getting started or yeah. finishing is the hard part. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's about identifying where, for me, I'm going to speak from personal experience, identifying for me where the weakness lies within a project. Also that every, mm-hmm. and that sometimes you'll fail. Like mm-hmm. I failed on producing um, a documentary mm-hmm. uh, mainly because I didn't have enough mentors around me or producers around me to tell me that the budget I wanted was impossibly low, mm-hmm. was absurdly low, mm-hmm. and that there was no way I was going to be able to do the things I need to do for the little amount of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I also I think failing is a lesson too. Mm -hmm. I think hold yourself accountable. Like I have people I write with. I try to give myself deadlines. I try to work with people. I I like to think of it. I try to, there's a lot of working relationships where sometimes you're alpha, sometimes you're beta. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need to be beta and sometimes you need to be alpha. And I think it's about knowing where you are in your creative process at this moment. And like, working with alphas or betas de- accordingly. Okay. Like there are some times where uh, I have time. I'm very passionate with some about the project and someone's I'm working with and they're into it. They don't have the same thing. So I'm the one who's calling them all the time, checking in, doing X, Y, and Z, following up. And I, I do the thing. And this is the thing I, I think for me, I'm slightly different. I, I don't build resentment easily because mm-hmm. I think sometimes people get resentful that this person didn't do what I wanted or they did this as if that's how working with a, a person would be like forever. Right. Versus like, I don't know why anyone does anything. I, I <laughs> actually try to live my life remembering that every single person has an inner life I do not have access to, that I have no clue what's motivating them moment to moment. And all I can do is try to verbally communicate my priorities, get them to verbally communicate theirs, and see if we can move forward. Right. Right. Because it's hard. I Yeah. For better or for worse, I don't take a ton personally, but like I think it's about creating infrastructures for yourself. Just the same way people have a chosen family or they're given family, uh, I think creating creative support structures that help you accomplish your goals are very important. You can find part of it in self-help books online, mm-hmm. your physical communities, however, but I think the infrastructure of people who are excited about what you're working on or bring you things they're excited about and their excitement's infectious. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it just depends. Yeah. So we're at the end of the episode here. This is a good time to create something. Now let's make it about this sort of project. If someone wants to make a short, uh, they've written it, they've uh, gone through all the process of writing it, they've done several drafts, they've gotten it where they want it to be. What steps would they need to go through if there's a simple way to lay it out in order to get that short shot and edit it and put out? So I would look at the, I'm going to put on a few different hats 
and put them on and off as needed. Mm-hmm. I would look at the script and think to myself, do I have to make it now? Mm-hmm. Or is it something I need to make once I have a little more clout? If okay. it's something that I can make now, I, I want to make now, I think, can I make it now? Meaning, are these resources realistic? Maybe they stretch me in out of my comfort zone. So like maybe I have to find a location or two or I have to hire an actor or two that isn't inherent in my friend group, etc. Then uh, I think about uh, how I plan to scout and who, what pivotal roles I need, right? Do I need a producer or do I need a few producers? Do I need an additional writer to help me punch up aspects of it? Do I need to direct or am I self-directing? Mm. Uh, I, think, I, I think about the crew and I really spend time thinking about what would be ideal and then what is realistic. Mm-hmm. And I crunch what is a realistic number for all of those people to be on the what's realistic side. Mm -hmm. And then I add 10 to 20%. (laughs) (laughs) Because everything will cost more. That's just the way it's kind of like any event. It's like throwing a wedding or a birthday party. It will cost more than you anticipate Mm -hmm. just because like there's extras like cabs and, and picking up equipment, an extra day rental, accident, uh, insurance, getting a bigger actor because they're, they happen to have a break and you have a connection to them, they like the script, so you you have to throw them a few extra bucks to make their reps happy, mm-hmm. et cetera. So once I have a budget, assembled a list of people, I start making calls for those people, right? And I start with the organizational people first, and then I start talking to the creative people. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do it that way is like, um, uh, I feel like I, I, my strong suit isn't as hard in the organizational part mm-hmm. that I have producers and I've known producers in my life who are way more organized and structured than I am. And they're just pros at it. And it aligns with who they are. And with me, I can do it, but it's always going to be a B plus at best. (laughs) Uh, um, Versus if you are more of an organizational driven person, you might want to align yourself with creative people first. Right. Okay. And then after that, I would probably have a, a great meeting where everyone got together and we just like talked through the different things and Mm -hmm. try to have a cross departmental meeting Mm -hmm. with as many people as you can get there. So that everyone can be on the same page about the, the direction that you want execution you want. Exactly. Especially because I assume that in this theoretical universe, this is partially Mm self-funded. So you have to have that discipline and forethought, Mm -hmm. uh, when it's other people's money, you still have to have that discipline and forethought, but there's the, the stakes are different. Mm-hmm. You're, you're more on the line reputationally versus 
being on the line for money, which mm-hmm. means for some people not eating <laughs> yeah. or lights or other things. Right. Um, and then after that, I would say uh, assembling the actors and still making sure you rehearse with them, depending. And then I would say shoot the thing. And hopefully by then, you, because you've done all the work of getting those people, you already have the editors picked out. You already have um, your release strategy, really taking the time to come up with a release strategy that you have to spend as much time on the back end as you do the front end, if not a lot more. Mm-hmm. That tweaking and getting to that final cut, you have to go through a bunch of fine cuts sometimes to get to that final cut. And then you have to figure out like, what's your strategy? like. And I would say even before you do any of this, one thing I would say, what's is there a purpose for you of this movie? If the purpose is just to create something interesting that you want the world to see, that's cool. But if this is your calling card, that's different. If this is so you can get a feature finance, that's different. Mm. If this is so you can get into the festival circuit so you can network and engage with a lot of different creatives, that's different. I think it's just setting clear goals, establishing people you want to work with up top, realizing it's going to take a lot more energy to birth this thing and to have a game plan of how you birth the thing and put it out there in the world and realize that you might get 25% of what you had hoped or you might get 500%. Like, and that you have zero control over that. You can just increase your odds. There it is. Listen, Keisha Zoller, you're amazing. And I really, really appreciate you sitting down to talk to me about all this. Thank you. I'm happy we could connect. You're great. Oh, gosh. You're you're great. I, no, I said you're great. Okay. Thank you. I yeah, will take, take the compliment. <laughs> May we all get better at taking compliments. Keisha is great. I'm so glad that she was on. I was so thankful to have her. So... Uh, Thank you so much, Keisha. It was a pleasure. She's on an upcoming show. It's called Yes, She Did, Stories About Women You Should Know. It's March 7th at 9 p.m. at Caveat here in New York City. The show is the day before International Women's Day and is part of Women's History Month. Caveat is a really dope venue here. It's a speakeasy, and they put on intelligent shows. It's all like intelligent-based somehow, whether it's science or something else. So basically, you can go kill some brain cells with alcohol and still go home smarter. I should write the slogans for companies. (laughs) I'm sure they would appreciate that one. They have a great lineup of shows, and this particular show with Keisha has a lot of amazing women on it. So go to that show. You can get tickets and more info online at caveat.nyc. For more on Keisha, check out KeishaZoller.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at KeishaZ, links in bio. You can follow us, too, at ThereItIsPod on Twitter and Facebook, and I'm on Twitter at JasonFarJokes. That's all for today, but we hope you come back. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. <laughs>